May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, be pleasing to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, be pleasing to you. You're my rock and my redeemer. You're the reason why I see. And I long to be a blessing in your eyes. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, oh Blessings flow. 
you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. God bless you. You guys can be seated. Always, always grateful to start our service off with baptism. You know, we've done that the past few weeks. And once again, another person has prayed and received Jesus. So before I, I call her up here, let me just explain to you a little bit about baptism. I talk to people about, uh, you know, a good bit about what's going to happen to them whenever they die. And a lot of people think they're going to go to heaven if they're a good person or if they're a religious person. Uh, but the reality is the scriptures teach that nobody's good enough to get to heaven and nobody's religious enough to get there. If we could get there based upon our good works or our religion, it would make zero sense for God the Father to send his son to die on a cross for our sin, right? So Jesus came to a cross. He there on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. Jesus died for you. He was buried and then he was resurrected. Amen. So Jesus got up from the dead and all of those who realize they're sinners, repent of their sin, place their faith in Jesus. They can be absolutely, totally forgiven of their sin and come into a relationship with God the Father. And Jesus said it like this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God the Father but through me. So really there's only one way for you to be saved. So if you reject Jesus, you will be rejected for all of eternity. But if you receive Jesus by faith, then the Bible teaches that God will welcome you into his presence into heaven in the days ahead. Amen. And how many of you have experienced that? Just say amen. Uh, very, very excited to see this morning someone that prayed to receive Jesus Christ last Sunday morning in our service and uh, excited to be able to baptize her. So Terry, come on up here, if you will. And Terry's nervous this morning. So y'all give her a hand clap as she comes. That always eases things. Just have a seat there and uh, scoot up. The chair's got some friends here. You guys stand up. We're so glad that y'all came to see her get baptized. Y'all let them know. Appreciate you coming. And Terry prayed to receive Jesus. And obviously this baptism water doesn't save you. It's just the first act of obedience for a new believer to be baptized. So Terry, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, baptize you, my sister, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bear with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Very good, very good. Take it away, buddy. It is so good to see you guys here this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you for coming to Concord. We've got several folks still making their way in, so uh, make some room for them. But it is awesome to see you guys. If you're visiting, fill out a little form for us. Drop it in the offering plate later on. If not, uh, take it back there to the back. Pastor Levi will be back there. Some of our folks and visiting guests, we've got a free gift for you. We'd love to have you to have that. All right? All right. All right, good. All right, will y'all stand up? Find somebody you don't know, all right? And uh, tell them it's good to see them here this morning. Do it right now.
believe indeed the cross is wondrous, amen? And it's brought us into relationship with the Lord. Let's go ahead and be seated for just a moment, if you will. We want to have a special time of prayer this morning uh, for all of those who are going back to school. I know all our teachers and students are fired up about that. Amen. There's about five of you. All right. God bless you. But um, I got scolded a couple of times after the first service because I didn't mention homeschoolers. So please forgive me. You know, I, if you are going to use a book in any stretch of the imagination next week, I'm going to pray for you so I don't get in trouble. But uh, we also have a special guest here, Mrs. Uh, Gregson is here. She's actually the new principal of Chattahoochee Christian School. Where are you at? I think somebody had mentioned to me that you're here. God bless you. We're so glad you're here. Y'all welcome her as she's here to help with that school. Good to have you this morning. So let's just bow together and we'll pray, okay? Father, we're grateful for our time together this morning. And obviously, you know, we come and we celebrate the wondrous cross. Indeed, you've paid the penalty of our sin. But we also just rejoice in the fact that you have been resurrected and you give us new life. And God, we come before you realizing as followers of you that we have purpose here on the earth. Uh, your desire is that us as a people would reflect your love to those around so that they might come to know you personally. God, you've given us the good news of Jesus and given us opportunity to share that to our community, to share that with our friends and our neighbors. And God, I pray that we would continue to do that with our whole hearts. And God, now we just pray for those who are attending school now. Some are starting very soon. I want to ask that you just give every single student a divine you know, intervention by your grace. And not only would they be able to learn, but also, God, they'd be able to reflect who you are to their peers. We pray, God, that you place a strong hedge of protection around them and they would stand firm on biblical principles and the truth and always be ready to give an account of the hope that lies within them. And God, we pray for revival really to start in the lives of many schools that you would draw people to salvation. We'd see a great move of your Holy Spirit. But also we pray for the teachers and faculty and other staff. And just want to pray, Lord, that you'd fill them with your spirit and use them in the days ahead for your glory. I thank you for their desire, not only to invest truth uh, into the lives of students, but also to impact them uh, for your namesake. And Lord, we trust that you're going to do that. Now, just speak to our hearts today and minister even as we continue to worship you as we prepare our hearts for the word. And God, we also want to keep in mind that there may be those here this morning who've never trusted you as Savior. God, I pray that today you'd use your word to call them to salvation and we would rejoice in your ability to redeem. And that's in the name of Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen.
Amen. Thank you, choir, Norcester, and James. And um, y'all let them know, man. They do this for two services. We're so blessed to have them to hang out with us. God bless you. Bless you. And um, let's bow our heads together in prayer as we prepare our hearts, all right? Father, we ask you to speak clearly to us. God, you know the desire here is not to... Uh, really hear from a man, but really to hear from heaven. So we pray that you'd use your word to speak clearly to each one of our hearts. And we really would be challenged in your presence, especially in the context of marriages. God, I know there are some marriages, you know, on the rocks. Uh, We would pray this morning that you would give us the opportunity to set those marriages back on the rock, uh, which is you. And Lord, that you just redeem uh, people, you draw them to yourself, and just do a great work, and we'll be absolutely quick to give you praise for it. And that's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray, and everybody said, amen. Well, last week we started the series, it was Marriage in the Red. Uh, This morning, we're really going to focus on Marriage in the Yellow. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you a question by a show of hands, and you got to raise your hand and be honest with me now. Uh, you're in church, and I know you, some of you. But uh, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard the statement, marriages are made in heaven? You slip a hand up real quick, real fast. Hold them up high, man. Be bold, all right? Now, go ahead and slip them back down, because I want to ask you another question. How many of you uh, still believe, after being married, that marriages are made in heaven? You slip your hands back up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I want to see who would be bold and say, not me, man. But anyway, so uh, that's good. You know, the fact is that the institution of marriage was made in heaven. See, God performed the first wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden. And when he wedded Adam and Eve, the Bible says in Genesis 2, 24, we read this. uh, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The institution of marriage likewise serves as an earthly picture of a heavenly truth. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 and 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So the husband is to be a picture of Jesus in the marriage relationship and the wife is to be a picture of the New Testament church in the marriage relationship. Now, with so much invested by God in the marriage, it makes good sense why the enemy would desire to attack the marriage. The forces of darkness desire to divide divide those who are married. The demonic forces of this current age seek to drive a wedge between the husband and the wife. The goal is to keep the marriage which has been instituted by God from reflecting the picture of Jesus and the church painted by the Lord. Now, we discovered together last week what a marriage in the red looks like. We talked about the word isolation. It describes a marriage where one or both of those in the union begin to spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and sexually separate. And the temptation was divorce. Now, whenever I preach on the subject of marriage and divorce, I'm always asked the question, well, what if there's unfaithfulness in the marriage or what about abuse? Surely there are times when isolation is valid. Now, of course, if a wife is being abused, there's cause for separation. There's no need for a wife to stay in a home where she's being physically abused. The spouse committing the abuse needs to get some help from Jesus and others to figure out what the problem is so that the marriage can be set back aright. Now, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, the Lord Jesus speaks on the issue of infidelity in the marriage relationship. Jesus says, and I quote in Matthew 19, 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So where there is the exception for divorce, there's no biblical mandate for remarriage. Now, I know that some of those in the body of Jesus Christ, they have already been remarried. I also know that God is gracious 
and uh, God can redeem your circumstances. The enemy would like to defeat some of you right now and say that your life is worthless or your marriage is worthless. However, that is not the case. You see, God forgives, God restores, and God can still use for his glory even your marriage. And what will happen sometimes, and please listen to the preacher just a moment. Some of you will go out of here and say, did y'all hear what Levi said about that? Do you hear what Levi believes about that? All I did was read to you exactly what Jesus did, all right? So please don't blame stuff on me that Jesus said. Y'all all right? Hey, man, I'm just a postmaster, all right? I just deliver the mail. I don't write it, all right? So please, a lot of folks get angry whenever you start, you know, visiting this idea of marriage and get all fired up. And I get crazy emails, too. So um, you can send those somewhere else. But anyway, so... Uh, the second, you can send them to James Dollar at BellSouth.com. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I know I'm wrong. But anyway, so the second term describing a marriage in the red was the word independence. This term is used to describe the marriage, which has turned out to be more of a roommate situation. And then finally, the last phrase describing a marriage in the red was invisible walls. Speaks about anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And we talked about the different kind of clothes that we received whenever we came to faith in Jesus. So we take off those old shirts of anger, wrath, we get rid of those things, and we begin to dress with the very things that the Lord God has given us so that we can fulfill our role in the marriage relationship. And then you'll also remember that there are four colors of marriage. So if you're visiting with us, just real quick, there's a red marriage, yellow, green, and then there's a blue. And so this morning, before we just rip into the color yellow, let me make a couple of statements. The principles that we are going to learn together here, although they are applied to the marriage relationship, they're also principles that you can apply to other relationships in your life. Just because you're a, a single person or you're a teenager or even widowed, don't think that this message will not apply to you. So you can take the principles and you can apply them. To give you a great illustration on how that works, uh, this past Thursday morning, I did a leadership prayer breakfast at Keller Williams, and I used two of the principles that I taught last week, which is marriage in the red, and talked about how those principles operate in the context of the workplace. So they just kind of fall right down. So please, you know, don't check out on me just because you're single or widowed or whatever the case is. Hang in there. God will teach you some stuff. Y'all with me? Say yes. And we'll talk about marriage in the yellow right now. And the first phrase that is used to describe a marriage in the yellow is inconsistent priorities. And you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. As you open your Bible, I'll kind of describe to you this idea of inconsistent priorities. This is a time when the spouse always seems to get the back seat in life. You know, I read about a man who went to the Super Bowl and he climbed up to the top row in the end section uh, of the stadium to reach his seat. After the game had started, he noticed there was an empty seat down about the 50 yard line. So after working his way down to it, he asked the man in the next seat, well, excuse me, sir, but is anybody sitting here? The man says, no, actually this seat belongs to me. Uh, I was supposed to come with my wife, but she has died. Uh, this is the first Super Bowl we haven't been to together since we were married in 1967. The man responded, man, that is like crazy sad, but still, couldn't you find anyone else to take the seat, you know, a relative or perhaps a close friend? And the man responded, no, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> I know, man. 
By the way, just, just, just for the record, that's the first canned joke I've ever used. All right, just so you know. But it was funny, wasn't it? So I read that mess and about fell out of my chair. But anyway, so uh, while that's a joke, there is no doubt that inconsistent priorities sneak up on marriages very quickly. So the wife, she gets the backseat to the husband's job. She says stuff like, well, he's always working. You know, he always comes in late. He's hardly ever at home. And then the wife gets the back seat to the husband's extracurricular activities. When he does finally get home, all he wants to do is go golf. All he wants to do is work in the yard. All he wants to do is go fishing. All he wants to do is watch sports on television. And then, you know, the husband gets the back seat as well. The husband can get the back seat to the children. So the husband says, well, I can't even have a conversation with my wife because all she ever does is hang out with the kids and talk about the kids. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the kids, but good night. Every once in a while, it would be nice to enjoy a real conversation about what is going on in her life. And then the husband often gets the backseat to the wife's obsession with her weight. He says, as soon as I get in, man, she rushes out to go exercise. And then when she comes home, she's so tired, she doesn't want to do anything but go to sleep. All she ever talks about is how many calories she's eating, how much weight she's gaining, how much she's losing. It is ridiculous. So the problem is simply out of whack priorities. And by the way, you know, these things that I share with you are things that I've actually uh, dealt with. There are people that I've talked to, and there are some also true uh, in Christianized marriage as well. And I'm not going to tell you which ones. But anyway, so... Uh, the problem's just out of whack priorities. The husband and or the wife don't prioritize their relationship with one another. You know, I've heard it said before, if we don't set our priorities in life, life will set our priorities. You know, the Bible says in Matthew's gospel, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So when the Lord God is our primary priority and focus in life, the Bible teaches that all other relationships will fall into place. But whenever the Lord God is not our primary priority, all of the relationships will suffer dearly. Now, the major temptation during these times of marriage is simply selfishness. And I got you looking at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. You got it there in front of you? Say yes. The Bible says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Now, very quickly, you may want to circle in your Bible the word nothing. All right? What are we supposed to do with selfishness? Let me ask you again, class. What are we supposed to do with selfishness? Nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or even conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, Eugene Peterson notes this verse is encouraging you and I to put ourselves aside and help others to get ahead. And whenever we operate by our own selfish desires, we will always choose to make sure that we get our way. Uh, this means it doesn't matter how others feel or how others might be affected. We want to do it our way, period. Now, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi actually has a major theme in it, and the theme is joy. And the people in the church became so selfish, I mean, they thought the entire fellowship should revolve around their personal needs, and as such, they weren't looking out for the best interest of one another. They were looking out for what would make them more comfortable. And as a result, the church lost their joy. And you see, joy is actually experienced through genuine service of one another. Did y'all hear that say yes? Joy is actually experienced through genuine service to one another. 
uh, just for free. You can come to church and sit down and never serve the Lord Jesus here, and eventually it's going to get old, all right? But your joy actually just comes out of you whenever you actually begin to serve other people in the context of the fellowship. That's what motivates you. That's what drives you. The same in the marriage relationship as well. Your marriage, have you ever noticed, by the way, when you were first married, how much joy there was in that, right? And then a little while goes by, and all of a sudden the joy begins to wane, and often it's because we become selfish in the marriage, and our selfish activity causes us to completely lose our joy. Now, instead, the husband is to regard the wife as more important than yourself. Wife, you should regard your husband as more important than yourself. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. And again, Paul is writing to Christians on how they should relate to one another. The principle should be applied to your spouse too. So think for a moment and answer this question honestly in your heart. And answer this about yourself, don't try to answer it for your spouse. But the question will be, have I been consistently looking out for my spouse's best interest? And then we can ask, have I prioritized our marriage? And then you could ask yourself, am I living as a selfish person, not regarding my spouse's feelings? Now that is the marriage in the yellow where it begins with inconsistent priorities. But then there's a second phrase, a marriage in the yellow is characterized by iffy love. That is I-F-F-Y, love, iffy love. It describes a marriage that is based upon conditional love. Now, in order to show you this, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, as briefly mentioned last week, iffy love is based upon feelings instead of choice. That's why the theme song of many marriages is, you've lost that love and feeling. Oh, 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 <laughs> that love and feeling. But anyway, there's a a couple of authors by the name of Don and Sally Meredith. They've written many marriage books, and here's what they've said, and I quote, uh, most couples define love in terms of how they feel. They can be no weaker foundation for a relationship. It is true that God created us with emotions, but they are an important element of human love. But emotions are a terrible basis for a relationship. The tragedy of fantasy love is that it is primarily based on feelings. If a person doesn't feel it anymore, he or she concludes that the love has disappeared, and then they say that's proof that it's gone, end quote. Now, when I make mention of iffy love, I primarily mean the love we promise if something happens. For example, you know, the wife gets all dolled up. She waits for her husband to come home from work. She thinks to herself, I've done it this time. I've got myself looking as good as I possibly can. And if he tells me that I'm beautiful and he notices me, then I'm gonna display my love toward him. And then the husband may say, well, if she's sweet, you know, if she cooks just right, if she dresses just right, if she looks just right, if she says the right thing, then I'm gonna love her. And all of this is based entirely upon the if principle. Hey, here's the question, how about God? Is that how God loves us? Well, of course not, and I'm glad for that too. God puts no condition upon your life or my life that we must meet in order to experience his unconditional love. So God doesn't say, okay, now if you go to church every single time the doors are open, then I'm gonna love you. Or God doesn't say, Levi, now if you'll read the Bible at least 30 minutes a day, then I'm gonna lavish my love all over you. That is so not what the scriptures teach. God's love is agape love. God's love is a choice, and God has chosen to love us. 
And that's exactly what kind of love we must express in the marriage relationship. So love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. We choose to love. And I love what James McDonald says, and I quote, emotions make a great caboose, but a terrible engine. See, the engine of marriage is to be the choice to love our spouse no matter what. Let the emotions follow. Now, Paul the Apostle describes love for us in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He tells the church how they are to love one another. And the principle of love should also be expressed in the marriage relationship. So take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, beginning in verse 4. We'll read through verse 7. The Bible says, Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Now, for just a moment, let's kind of break some of those words down so we can get a fuller picture of what Paul the Apostle is teaching. First, he says, love is patient. That means it waits. You have a long fuse, not a short one. It doesn't become agitated or pushy. Love is kind. Kindness is most often expressed in what we say or how we say it. Keep your words free of petty criticism and focus on words that will build one another up. And then love is not jealous. You see, jealousy wants to keep and envy wants to have. Be content with the spouse that God has given you. And maybe I should repeat that. Be content with the spouse that God has given you. And then the Bible says love does not brag. It's not arrogant. That is, it doesn't strut. It doesn't have a big head. You express this when you adopt an accepting attitude and you willingly embrace your spouse. And then the scripture says love isn't rude. It doesn't force itself on others. It doesn't develop a sharp, critical spirit, but remains tactful. Love is not selfish. It doesn't have to be first. It's not a me-before-you attitude. And then love is not short-tempered. That is, it doesn't fly off the handle. It values the person behind the frustration. And then love doesn't keep account of wrong suffered. It doesn't keep score. I love that. You know, I've actually had some uh, marriage counseling sessions where the husband and wife, they begin to argue with each other all of a sudden. And it is amazing some of the information that people can actually remember. And so they began to bring up all this history, all right? And they start talking about, well, you remember 10 years ago, here's what you said. I'm like, good night. She remembers 10 years ago, one phrase, and has held it since then, waiting for this day to let it loose, all right? And as long as you continue to hold on to those things, you're not expressing biblical love. But instead, you're living a selfish life, and instead of becoming better, you're becoming bitter, not expressing agape love. Love finds no pleasure in wrongdoing. That is, it doesn't play games. Love is an act of doing what is right. Now, when you begin to feel this way, you can be certain that you're expressing genuine biblical love when these are true of your life. In fact, I've actually had someone in the past tell me, Levi, you ought to go in there, where it says love, write your name in it. So in other words, I would read through it like this, Levi's patient, Levi's kind, Levi's not jealous, and so forth. And then that gives you a good, real imagery of whether or not you're seeking to live a lifestyle in that attitude. Now, the temptation of if you love, conditional love, is to possess a critical attitude toward your spouse. That is... Uh, you continue to criticize them for how they dress, uh, criticize them for how they look, how they sit, how they walk, how they act, or even how they don't act. You know, there was actually a particular wife on one occasion. She was uh, talking about how her husband sits 
She said, it drives me nuts. We go somewhere, he's all slouchy in his chair. Everybody's looking at him, he looks like a lazy bum. I'm like, just chill out. He's just trying to relax him, you know what I mean? Give the guy a break, good night. But see, what, what the deal is, is that's only a symptom of the real problem. The real problem is she's become selfish, she's living by unbiblical love, that is she's trying to muster up her own love, and as a result, she becomes critical of her husband. So if you're here this morning and you have a critical attitude towards your spouse, uh, here's a biblical mandate for you, stop it. All right, y'all like that one? That'll preach, won't it? But a critical attitude is what kept the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. God had a greater place for them. But their attitude, stinking attitude, continued to drive a wedge between where they were and where God wanted them to be. In fact, here's the thought. Uh, some of our critical attitudes are actually keeping our marriages in the wilderness. You're driving a wedge between where you are and where God wants your marriage to be all because of a critical attitude. Now, let me just kind of be a little bit transparent. If there's an area where I struggle the most, it's probably this one. I can, uh, and I've caught myself more than once uh, in the trap of becoming critical of Krista in about two seconds. Are y'all still out there say yes? And so what will happen is, you know, I've, I've got to pray and really guard my tongue, take hold of the thoughts that are wrong and realize that the enemy is seeking to get me to have a critical attitude and actually to display iffy love. This is not only true, by the way, in the marriage relationship, but whenever you begin to operate in the flesh, that is your old way of living, as opposed to allowing the Spirit of God to live through you, what happens is you become critical, not only of your spouse, but I've noticed this too. I can actually become critical of my kids. Uh, before you know it, I become critical of uh, my friends. Then before you know it, I can become critical of other people, even in the context of the church. And whenever you're living a selfish life and you're in the flesh, you become critical and you blow things out of proportion. Are y'all listening say yes? Now, here's the deal. God has convicted the fire out of me on this. Y'all out there? And so, as a result of this, I have to learn now that I know the enemy, his goal is going to be to plant these negative, critical thoughts in my brain. Y'all listening? Now, the Bible says what I must do is take those thoughts captive. That means you go up to them, grab hold of them, and you bring them into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all with me? Say yes. And you put those thoughts to death. You should not allow those things to enter into your mind because whenever it gets into your mind, it begins to control your activity. But good news is this. Well, you and I can express agape love. Agape love, the Bible says, and by the way, agape just means unconditional. God's love has been poured out in you, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to the preacher just a moment because there is a caveat to this. If you have never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what I'm saying right now ain't true about you, all right? You're still living in the flesh, living by your own ways, by your own standards. You're just trying to make it, man. But whenever you realize you're a sinner, you really humble yourself before Almighty God and say, I just can't save myself. And you see what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, dying for your sin, he was buried and resurrected. And you say, God, I can't forgive myself. I can't save myself. I'm just gonna trust you to completely forgive me at the moment that you pray to receive Jesus, the Bible says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within your life. He comes to live in you. Now here's the awesome part about that. That is God's way of pouring out His love into your life. His love is unconditional. Y'all still with me say yes? So God pours out His love into your life by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit actually takes control of your life, guess what you are able to do? Love unconditionally. Who are you able to love unconditionally? Everybody but your spouse, too. 
Have y'all ever noticed uh, the spouse is the one who really knows it? Y'all with me? That's the one you let your guard down with. Be careful you don't let yourself be controlled by your flesh instead of the Holy Spirit. So allow the Spirit of God to control you. Now, is there a text of Scripture that helps us to stay away from having a critical attitude towards one another? Yes, there is, and that's found in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. And let me just read this to you. I think we've got it on the screen. But the Bible says, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there is excellence and if anything worthy of praise, then dwell on these things. So the key to not expressing iffy love is to focus your attention on that which is right and good about your spouse. And what we think about will always show up in our attitude and actions. So you have to choose to love unconditionally and focus on the positive aspects. Now, y'all look at me. Let me talk to you for just a second. Y'all look and say yes. That was like seven of you. Y'all look and say yes. God bless you. All right. Here's the deal. Some of you guys have been in a red marriage. All right. What we talked about last week is true of you. In fact, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, just, just had a few conversations this week on some issues that are going on. So what ends up happening is this, and I want to show you this. I talked to you last week about how a man gets caught up in pornography and all this kind of mess, and it just totally ruins his ability to love his wife correctly. So what ends up going on then is even though he overcomes it or he experiences a victory in there and he repents of that, he comes back to his wife and says, wife, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be looking at that stuff, I won't look at it anymore, let's put a filter on this thing, I'm gonna get things right. Now check this out, he's experienced a little victory. What the enemy will do is he will change his direction now. He says, okay, this husband, he's experiencing some victory, so now I'm gonna go over here and I'm really gonna focus on attacking the wife. So then the enemy will come to the wife and say, hey, you know why he's looking at that stuff? Because you're so ugly. Are y'all listening? I mean, that's just legit preaching right there. That's for real. And then what's ever happening is this. You start saying, you're right, you know, I am pretty ugly. No wonder he doesn't want to be with me. And you start kicking a can of self-pity around. And before you know it, your whole, you know, esteem, if we want to call it that, your self-esteem, it just goes to the, you know, to the tubes. And you're just sitting there. And it's like, good night. Uh, he doesn't want me. And you know what? I don't even want him looking at me. I don't want him touching me. Just don't even talk to me. You see how the enemy does it? The enemy was attacking the husband. He got some victory, and then he just changed his sights now. Okay, the husband experienced a victory. Let me get the wife. So look, look at the preacher just a minute. Wife, what do you need to do? Y'all listening? Say yes. Here's what you need to do. Every single time an unbiblical thought comes into your brain, you attack it and take it captive. And you bring it to the Lord Jesus. Uh, hey, Jesus, is this legit? And here's what Jesus say. No, no, no. Don't you remember what? Uh, God the Father said, he said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't believe that. That's the enemy talking to you. Are y'all listening? But as long as you begin to entertain these unbiblical thoughts, it will absolutely ruin your ability to now love your husband who's experiencing some victory in his life. <laughs> are are y'all out there? I can tell. So characteristics of marriage in the yellow. So far, inconsistent priorities and iffy love. Third characteristic, and I gotta go quick, of the marriage in the yellow is inconsiderate choices. Uh, these choices could be in the area of finances, words, hobbies, etc. You know, a husband always uses his income, the wife says. All he does is use his income to purchase what he desires with no consideration that I may need something. That's what the wife may say. Then the housewife, she waits for her husband to come home so she can split and leave him with the kids. She doesn't consider that he may be tired from a hard day of work. 
And you know what's wild is that, yeah, that's happened before. Uh, you know, marriage not here, so relax. But there was a, a marriage I was talking to and the wife's, you know, sitting in there and the wife says, yeah, when he gets off work, he needs to come in the house and take them kids and I'm leaving. It's his turn. <laughs> nah, I thought you're a scary woman. But anyway, so, uh, I mean, that's frightful, man. So, but, but here's the deal. There's no consideration. Now, does that mean that, you know, the wife should just be always, just, no, no, listen. She needs to understand her husband comes in one direction. And this is just me talking about this couple right now. The, the husband comes home. He's been working all day. He's wore out. Give him at least 30 minutes just to chill and take a break. Y'all all right? Give him that opportunity. And then he needs to get up. Listen, he needs to get up and be a dad. Are y'all listening? Uh, so and I, this is all just for free because y'all listen, look like you're listening. Whenever you come home, dad, don't sit in the chair and just watch the TV until it's time for you to go to bed. That ain't being a good dad. Get up and get to know your kids. <laughs> and I got four of them. Y'all all right? And it's hard because sometimes you do. You just flat out get wore out, but you need to make good choices. Now, God says that when you become married, you become one. So the enemy wants you divided. So what the enemy will seek to do is entice you to choose unwisely. He knows that your unwise choices will bring disunity in the home. So the bottom line is you choose every day whether or not to value your marriage. You really do. In fact, You'll make a choice after this message to move forward into God's best for your marriage, or you'll choose to ignore the principles that we've learned together and not put them into practice. So everybody's gonna make a choice. Your choices will either bring you closer together or they will push you further apart. So really, I could wonder this morning, if you uh, have been making choices without any consideration of your spouse. Now, I've kind of tried to go through that real quick so I could get to this last part. Because what I want to do is talk to you about how to get out of the yellow. Are y'all with me? Say yes. And I want to try to be as practical as possible. And uh, I always wish, you know, I had a, a preacher that would do this for me, a pastor, uh, when I was growing up. Just show me, like, how to do that on a daily basis. And uh, I've kind of learned just by default. I've learned some things. I'm still learning a bunch of stuff, all right? So what I'm going to do is challenge you, just like we did last week. And I did it last week. I missed a couple of days. But I took the marriage in the red questions that I gave you at the end of the deal. I did every one of those things, man. And it's shocking how sensitive, by the way, you become to what God is doing in your marriage whenever you actually begin to pray about it, seek God's word, those kinds of things. You with me? Say amen. And don't be yawning out there. If you're yawning, I'll come get you. You know I'm talking about you. But anyway, so uh, y'all look at me. Here's, here's what I'm going to do this week. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Now, everybody's going to get a sheet of paper when you leave if you want one to really adopt the marriage in the yellow and just begin to do these things. Here's how it rolls out. We talk about the AM prayer goals. So I'm just gonna sit before the Lord and I'm gonna take my AM prayer goals and I, I use these little cards, it helps me. And just before the Lord, I just read the first statement. I will intentionally make marriage a priority today. So you know what that's gonna do with me? It's gonna challenge me to pray. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say, Lord, you know, in my flesh, in my own life, I really wouldn't make my marriage a priority. So God, I'm going to seek you with my whole heart this morning, and I'm going to ask that you would enable me to make my marriage a priority today. Are y'all listening? Say amen. amen. Then I go to the second little statement. I will dwell on that which is good today. Someone say, Lord, you know, I always have a critical attitude when I get into flesh. So Lord, I want to pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit and allow me to have a proper attitude towards Krista and love her unconditionally. And then I go to the third statement, I will make choices which unify our marriage today. So I'm just saying, Lord, I don't want to make inconsiderate choices. God, I want to make choices that actually bring Chris and I together, and I'm going to pray that you would help me to be sensitive to that. Y'all with me? Say amen. L let me do it to you like, well, no. Let's go on to the daily scriptures. I thought about doing something else, but I'll come back to that. 
Are y'all with me? I'm having fun. I don't know what y'all are doing. I'm having a good time. Can y'all see? Y'all can see me, can't you? All right. I can't get up any higher, man. I'm six foot four. Good night. So then as soon as I finish praying like that, I'm going to go to the daily scriptures. And these are scriptures I'm going to encourage you to memorize. I look at Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So I'm going to pray, God, my goal is to seek first who you are, your rule, your reign in my life. And I'm trusting, Lord, that when I do this, you're going to add everything else into its right place. You with me? And then I go to the next verse, Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brother, what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So I just read that verse and I stop and say, Lord, you know how the enemy loves to attack my mind and get me thinking things I ought not to think. Lord, you know how that happens. Are y'all listening? Does that not happen to y'all? Y'all quit looking so spiritual. That happens to me. So I'm praying, Lord, don't allow those thoughts to get in my brain. And each time that they do, give me the wisdom to take them captive, get rid of them, and submit to that which is right, pure, and good. So then I go to the third one here, Philippians 2 and 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So here's my prayer now. Lord, uh, in my own flesh, I would be selfish and everything would revolve around Levi Skipper. Lord, help me not to live like that. Especially help me today to make sure that I lift Krista up and I serve her and I love her the way she ought to be loved. Does this make sense? So then I'm praying. Now, here's the deal. I get up from that prayer. Guess what happens to me now? I am overwhelmingly sensitive to all three areas that I've just mentioned in my own personal life. If I'm praying in the morning that the Lord would give me wisdom to identify the enemy's attack on my brain, as soon as that attack occurs, boy, it just screams at me. And I know it then. Become greatly sensitive to that. Are y'all listening? I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to make that more plain. Then at the end of the day, what I'm going to do, and this takes like less than five minutes. 